Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Happy Halloween month to my fellow horror nerds. I'm continuing my yearly tradition of doing 31 days of horror movies. If you want to join in the fun, you can join my Facebook group. While I do not have a traditional Facebook podcast group, I do have a small movie discussion group that I've been running since 2016. So if you're interested in joining that, I'll put a link in the show notes. Also, this year will be my fifth annual collaborative Halloween episode, and I'm still seeking submissions from fellow podcasters as well as listeners and friends. If you're interested in submitting something to me, you can send me a message on Facebook or on Twitter, where my username is MidnightSunPod. In case you haven't listened to the last episode or two, I've been working on converting my workshop slash tool shed into a recording studio by putting foam panels over basically every square inch of the walls and ceiling. It's still not as soundproof as I would prefer, but it's much better than my house, and it's marginally larger than my closet. It's also super cozy, and the best part is that unlike my house, it's not full of noisy animals. So hopefully the show is sounding better lately, and the quality will continue to improve. I have to say, advice-wise, living 100 yards from a busy highway is not really a prime location for anyone, but especially not a homegrown podcast host. So to start with, today has been a very strange day, one of the strangest in a, a long, long while. Earlier, as I was editing this episode, I learned that someone I've known for over 30 years was arrested for murder. The experience was jarring, to say the least. And despite it being about 85 degrees outside, I had goosebumps for over an hour as I just tried to process the news. I'm sure that most of us have at least one acquaintance or someone we went to school with who later was involved in a violent crime, either as victim or perpetrator. I have those, but this is the first time that I've learned that someone I was once good friends with was suspected of one of the worst crimes out there. The feeling is just indescribable. It's nearly impossible to reconcile someone that you thought you knew with this sudden new version of them that 
somehow now includes the propensity for great violence. I bring this up for a few reasons. Firstly, just on a personal note, and secondly, because my experience greatly parallels with that of the friends and family members of the murderer I'm going to discuss in this episode. Their reaction to what their friend and relative had done was something beyond disbelief. Because none of them seemed to ever have expected this person to be capable of the shocking violence that they did. It's one of those things that, as you're hearing about it, you might suspect that their loved ones did have some lingering thoughts in their subconscious about that person, but didn't want to voice them in the aftermath. I felt that way. But now that I've had this experience, I have to say, if I had to choose some names of people that I've known that might go on to commit a violent crime, I never would have landed on this person's name. It would never even have crossed my mind. And based on the many conversations I've been having with mutual friends pretty much all day, that seems to be the general consensus. And by the way, I'm obviously not naming names because it's an unfolding story. But anyway, I've rambled for far too long, so let us get into this episode. When I first started this podcast back in 2017, I initially released a bunch of episodes, I think 20-something, that were not of the best quality, and I subsequently ended up taking them all down and starting over. I later redid some of those episodes, but not all. Today's episode is one that I have not re-released until now. While it is the same basic narrative of the original episode, the script is about 80 to 90% different. So even if you listened to the original episode, you may still enjoy the redux. It's a bizarre and convoluted case, which had legal ramifications many years after it happened. And it seemed like a good case to revisit and redo, with four years of researching, writing, and recording the show under my belt since the original was released... I hope it's a little bit better. Today's case is a strange one involving a bizarre crime scene, a murder mystery, and a manhunt, all taking place under the blue sky and sunshine of Southern California. I actually first came across this case on an episode of Dateline many years ago, and it's one that just really stuck with me, and I bet many listeners will feel the same way. I first covered this case while living in a tiny house in Alaska, but as I work on rewriting it now, I too am sitting beneath the pleasant blue sky and sunshine of SoCal, a mere 80 miles from where it occurred. The source of this, the source for this episode is Killing for You by Keith Elliott Greenberg. It was a great true crime book and I recommend it. Costa Mesa, California is a small city of around 100,000 residents, located in a prime location on the coast, just about 42 miles south of LA. It's a relatively small city for California, and it's located in Orange County, the sixth most populous county in the US. Many people think of Orange County as a place where only the very wealthy elite live, and it has certainly earned that reputation being ranked in 2020 as the second most expensive county out of the 50 largest in the U.S. 
but it does have some diversity, being made up of 3 million people spread out among, spread out among its 34 cities and many other unincorporated places. And while Costa Mesa is nowhere near the cheapest cities to live in the county, it's a lot more affordable than famously ritzy places like Newport Beach and Laguna Beach. And as is often the case in expensive areas, the homicide rate there is low in comparison to both the U.S. average and the California average. During the 2010s, Costa Mesa's yearly homicide rate ranged from 0.9 to 3.6 per 100,000 people, whereas both the average yearly rate for the U.S. and California were both right around 5 per 100,000. Because of this, the community was especially rocked by the startling and brutal events that took place in May 2010. Our story begins in the most innocuous of settings, an attractive apartment complex on the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum. The Camden Martinique Apartments, located on Pine Creek Drive in Costa Mesa, just a few miles from the coast, seemed like a fantastic place to live, with two pools, four hot tubs, a picnic area, and a really decked out fitness center. It seems like it would be an exceptionally fun place to live, especially for young people looking to make friends and party. Sam Hare was a 26-year-old guy who was living in the Camden Apartments and attending Orange Coast Community College, where he was studying political science. However, unlike many people his age, he had already done a lot with his life and seen much of the world in the army. After a tour in Afghanistan and travels throughout Europe, once his time in the army was over, he had returned to California to live close to his parents while taking classes. Along with being more accomplished than the average 26-year-old, Sam was also very driven and focused. He had saved the majority of his earnings in the army to pay for college, and he was considering returning to the military after college to become an officer. While living in the CM apartments, he had befriended his neighbors, a young couple named Dan Wozniak and Rachel Buffett, who were also in their 20s. Dan and Rachel were really into stage acting and worked for a local theater company. In the spring of 2010, they were doing the musical Nine, which is based on Federico Fellini's classic film, Eight and a Half. Dan was known to be a boisterous and charming guy. He often landed large roles in local theater productions, and he was cast as the leading man again in the musical Nine, and his fiancee Rachel also had a sizable role. They had spent that spring going to rehearsals and planning for their upcoming wedding, which was scheduled for May 28th. While Dan was large in both presence and actual size, Rachel was the opposite. She was tiny and blonde with dreams of stardom as an actress. Along with being in local productions, she had also worked at Disneyland dressing as a princess, a role which seemed tailor-made for her. Dan and Rachel had been together for several years after meeting in the theater community. They had been engaged since 2008. The petite blonde and her beefy, boisterous boyfriend 
were well known in the theater community. To their acquaintances, the pair seemed like opposites. At parties, Dan was often loud and friendly, while drinking quite a bit, whereas Rachel could be quite a bit more reserved. But they did seem to really love each other and have fun together. The CM apartments were often populated with young people due to its proximity to the college, and it had a friendly vibe with everyone becoming buddies with their neighbors while spending time in the pools, hot tubs, and other outdoor areas. Sam had not lived in the building long before he had befriended Dan and Rachel. Despite not having much in common on the surface, Dan was the kind of person that tended to suck people into his orbit with his big personality, and the three of them ended up hanging out on occasion. Along with Dan, Rachel, and others that Sam had become fast friends with in the apartment complex, he had many others that he had met in his college classes, and he balanced his studies with a very active social life. He was known among his friends as being loyal to the end and treasuring his friends as though they were family members. And despite his stereotypical military clean-cut appearance and being extremely fit and muscular, he was also known as being a big softie with a huge heart. One close friend he had made at the college was a 23-year-old fashion student named Juri Kibuishi, who also went by Julie. The pair clicked right away and ended up becoming as close as brother and sister. They had the rare platonic friendship between two straight single people of the opposite sex that had no sexual tension or underlying romantic feelings. Juri was a Valentine's Day baby and a gorgeous young Japanese woman who had spent much of her life training as a dancer. She was also very passionate about fashion, which she was studying at Orange Coast Community College when she befriended Sam during a class they shared. She was an extremely colorful individual, both metaphorically and literally. She used her clothing and makeup to express her creativity and use her skin as a canvas, which she had adorned with several tattoos and piercings. I can identify with that. On the surface, it may have seemed that the pair were complete opposites, but they actually had quite a bit of things in common. Both of them were extremely personable, kind, and treated others with respect. They both easily made friends with a wide variety of people from all walks of life. They were both exceptionally close with their families. Only child Sam was best friends with his dad Steve and hung out with him at least once a week. He had actually moved to the Orange County area after exiting the army to be near his folks. Jury also came from a very tightly knit family consisting of three siblings and her parents with whom she was still living while attending classes. One major thing that Sam and Jury discovered they had in common was that they both were in long-distance relationships. Jury was crazy about her Marine boyfriend who was stationed far away, and Sam was engaged, or at least seriously discussing marriage, to a young woman in Germany that he had met while stationed there. The more that the pair learned about each other and the similar values they shared, the closer the friendship they developed 
and he began to see her as the little sister he never had. Sam, Jury, Rachel, and Dan were four young people with their minds set on a future with seemingly limitless potential until the shockingly brutal events of one day changed everything. On Saturday, May 22, 2010, Steve and Raquel Hare were wondering where their son was. He had planned to visit them that weekend, but had never shown up or called to cancel. As they tried calling him and continued to get no response, they realized that they hadn't actually talked to him in a couple of days. Despite the fact that he lived on his own, he was the kind of guy who always let his parents know what he was up to. He was a reliable guy, and his folks knew that he would never not show up without at least contacting them and letting them know why. Because of this, they were a lot more worried than other parents might be in the same situation. And so when they continuously got no answer by calling Sam's phone, Steve decided to drive the short distance to Sam's apartment to check on him. He arrived and knocked on the door, but was greeted with silence. He had a spare key to the apartment and eventually let himself in. At first glance, nothing seemed amiss other than the empty apartment having most of, most of its lights left on. As he continued venturing further into the apartment towards Sam's bedroom, I'm sure that like many of us, he had worst case scenarios of what he might find in there running through his mind. But it's unlikely that any of them matched the reality of the macabre scene that greeted him. There, sprawled face down across the bed, was a woman's body. She was not wearing any pants, and there was blood all over the bed around her. As he got closer, he saw that the words, quote, she's all yours, fuck you, were written in marker across the back of her sweatshirt. In an odd juxtaposition with the horrifying crime scene, Steve noticed that the woman was wearing a tiara on her head. And as he bent closer to study what he could see of her face, he realized with sinking dread that he recognized her. It was Sam's good friend, Jewry, whom had spent time with Sam and his folks, and it was obvious that she had been dead for quite some time. A storm of emotions must have flooded through him as he had to call 911 and tell them that he had just found a body in his son's apartment. The body of a young woman that he personally knew to be kind and caring. And there was still no sign of his son. Not only that, but he knew exactly how the crime scene would look to someone that didn't know his son. Someone whose job it was to be an objective observer. When a young woman is murdered, the police will of course look at the men in her life. And when she's found in the apartment of one of those men, the likelihood that that man becomes the prime suspect magnifies tenfold. But when you hear hoofbeats, it's not always horses. And sometimes a narrative that seems straightforward at first ends up deviating in a direction that not even the most reckless gambler would bet on. When the crime scene was properly analyzed, Law enforcement discovered that Jury had died from two gunshot wounds in the back of the head. She never saw her death coming, a cold comfort.
homicide detectives quickly became involved in the case and had the devastating task of both informing Jury's family of her death and questioning them about the days leading up to it. One mystery was solved when they learned that just prior to her murder, on May 21st, she had spent the evening with her brother Taka and his fiancée discussing the upcoming wedding. They had asked her if she would be a bridesmaid, which she of course happily agreed to, and they gave her a pretty tiara to wear at the wedding. The juxtaposition between the planned use for the accessory and the actual use is beyond horrifying. Taka also told detectives that Jury had been hanging out with him that Friday, and she had been getting a lot of texts and said that Sam was texting her, saying that he needed someone to talk to. She decided to leave and head over to Sam's apartment, which is just an indication of what a kind and caring person she was. She could easily make the decision to leave a happy celebration with her family to go help out a friend in need. The last message that Taka received from her said that she had made it to the apartment building and heard what sounded like Sam crying inside of his unit. Her phone had been found at Sam's apartment, and when detectives read through the message thread with Sam that Friday night, they saw he had texted her many times that evening, asking her to come over around midnight because he needed someone to talk to about some family problems he was having. It was beginning to look like Sam had come up with an excuse to have her come over late at night and ended up sexually assaulting and murdering her. But Sam's family continued to insist that there was absolutely nothing romantic between them. He was head over heels in love with his long-distance girlfriend slash fiance. And besides that, they knew his character and that he just didn't have it in him to do something so heinous. But they still had no leads on where Sam may have gone. And without him to come forward and explain what happened, he quickly became seen as the one and only suspect, and a manhunt was quickly launched. But everyone that knew Sam never once considered that he could have done this and they were more worried for his safety than anything else. His family and friends began to believe that something terrible might have happened to him as well. Because if not, surely he would have come forward with his side of the story. While police were executing their own massive hunt for Sam, his dad Steve was doing his own investigating. He was able to look at his son's bank accounts, and he saw that there had been a lot of recent activity Someone had withdrawn money several times and used the card to buy food and other random things. Steve knew that Sam had saved over $60,000 from his time in the army, and he was very good with his money and not the type to just aimlessly spend it. So this was all starting to look like some sort of setup to him. He did his own little stakeout at a restaurant where the card had recently been used, to no avail. He also began talking to other residents in the apartment building, trying to figure out what Sam was up to in the days leading up to May 21st. He soon met two guys named Jake and Dave that also lived at Camden, 
and they said they remembered seeing Sam leaving on that Friday with his neighbor Dan to go to the local theater where Dan was acting in the musical Nine and to help with some behind-the-scenes stuff. And apparently Dan had later told them that Sam had ended up leaving the theater with some other guy and that was the last time that he saw him. Steve tracked down Dan to question him about this story. Dan relayed the story that Sam had helped him out, and they had discussed some family issues he was dealing with. Upon hearing this, loud alarm bells went off in Steve's head. Not only had there not been any family issues going on, but the same thing had been mentioned in the text to jury, which was not public knowledge. Steve was beginning to develop a very bad feeling about Dan Wozniak. And that's where I'm going to end this first part of the story. It was getting a little long and tedious, and I wanted to get an episode out to you guys, so I decided to break it up into two parts. The second part will be out very soon. Until then, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.